All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Dexter Van Zyl, Managing Editor of MEF's new publication, Focus on Western Islamism, join us to discuss a Muhammad picture and Hamlin's crisis. We'll begin with a 15-minute uh, of interview-style conversation, followed by 15 minutes of Q&A from the audience. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, let's dive into our first question. So we're talking about the Hamlin University in Minnesota and what happened there uh, with the showing of the images of Muhammad in art history class. Can you give us a brief chronology of what happened? Uh, that's probably the one time when it was bad for me to be muted. Um, I'll try to be brief. What happened was is that uh, on uh, in early October, uh, uh, Erica Lopez Prater, who was an, an adjunct faculty member at Hamlin University, or was, uh, showed two pictures of Muhammad during class, uh, during an art history class. And they were from the 14th and uh, 16th centuries. And they were basically pictures that uh, obscure one of the one of the images obscured his face, but these images were drawn to venerate uh, Muhammad, not to discredit him or insult him in any way. And they were drawn by Muslims, so these were essentially pious images of Muhammad. And the thing was, is that she the the professor had warned her students in class and in the syllabus that she was going to actually be displaying these images long before she ever did. And she said, if you are going to be offended by these images, then we can figure out another way to get the material across to you and we can make it so that you do not have to see these images. And that was and she had sent that syllabus, according to a legal brief that was filed in a lawsuit against the university. She had sent the syllabus both to the people in the art history or the art department at Hamlin University and to the administration itself with these essentially trigger warnings in the document. And no one objected at the school, according to the legal brief. And so essentially, she showed the images on October 8th. And after the class was over, uh, there was a, a student by the name of Aram Wedatala, who was also president of the Muslim Student Association. She complained and she got and she uh, essentially told uh, the, the professor that she was really offended by the display of these images. And she, the professor herself then spoke to her superiors at the university and told her that, they, that, that one of the students objected. And essentially within, and, and this student then went on to complain to the university. And within a very short period of time, one of the administrators issued a statement saying that it, the, the, the broadcast or the display of these images in class uh, were uh, undeniably Islamophobic. And one of the things that this vice president also announced was is that she was not gonna be coming back uh, to teach uh, the following semester. They were gonna essentially sever the relationship that she had had with the school. And according to the legal brief filed on her behalf against Hamlin University, she had already gotten very good reviews from the students or, or praise from the students, and they had already asked her if she would come back the following semester. And essentially, that was really I, the the controversy really was hit public around Christmas time. But on December 8th, uh, there was a, a campus meeting 
in which uh, an official from the local chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations uh, by the name of Jelani Hussein, the director of the Minnesota chapter of that organization, uh, he showed up, he was on the meeting and he uh, at the meeting, which was videotaped. And one of the things that he said was, is that, look, Muslims throughout the world are going to be offended by the display of these images. Uh, and this is according to the legal brief. And also that uh, essentially you could have another Charlie Hebdo situation on, on your hands, which was a very shocking thing for me to see in the brief. Uh, because essentially, if you remember the Charlie Hebdo massacre that took place in 2015, a number of people were killed by jihadists who were offended by the display of images insulting Muhammad. And so essentially, that was really one of the things that when I saw that in the brief, I was personally shocked because it was kind of an implicit threat like, look, you know, you need to be careful about these images. And so that is really where stood for a while. And then the, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Freedom issued a statement saying that Hamlin basically failed in its obligation to protect uh, academic freedom. And essentially, in the past few weeks, the faculty at the university uh, has asked for the university president, uh, Fainice Miller, uh, to, uh, uh, to re resign. And also, they essentially apologized after the lawsuit was uh, filed. They said we were wrong to say that this was Islamophobic. And essentially, they used the language of saying that we made a misstep. And most interestingly about all of this, and I think this is the important upshot, is, is that the na National Organization of the Council on American Islamic Relations essentially said that this was not an instance of Islamophobia. So they have issued a statement that directly contradicts what was said by uh, their local chapter. And that, I think, is where it stands right now. Sadly enough, I think that the controversy is still going on and the local school newspaper has done a terrible job of covering it. And it's, and it's very sad. Thank you for that overview. Uh, so in your commentary about the controversy, you were quite critical of the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations. What role did CARE Minnesota play in stoking the controversy? Well, I think one of the things that they've done essentially is to try and promote this narrative of, uh, of, of Muslims being fragile uh, here in the United States and that they are basically a beleaguered and victimized minority. And during a press conference that was held on uh, January 11th, uh, after the controversy really started to generate a lot of negative publicity for the university, they came to the defense uh, of the uh, university's president. And that December 8th meeting is, I think, going to be crucial, I think, in the, in the way that this story goes forward. I really do hope to see the video of that meeting, uh, which is mentioned released at some point, either during discovery as, as a result of the, uh, the lawsuit, because I think that's going to be a crucial moment, because we want to see exactly what uh, Jelani Hussein said and how we behave during this meeting. But essentially, it seems as if they used uh, it, it, the, the, the weird thing about this is that it's almost as if Hamlin University is allowed essentially a certain amount of its if you forgive the phrase institutional sovereignty, it's handed it over to the local chapter of, uh, you know, uh, CARE Minnesota. And by bringing up the Charlie Hebdo uh, massacre, 
essentially what they did was they injected an element of fear in the discourse about these uh, these images and academic freedom that simply does not belong on a college campus anywhere. Thank you. Uh, there seems to be a division between Care National and uh, Washington, D.C. and the local care chapter. What do you think is going on? I think that uh, Muslim leaders in the United States and even some Islamist leaders in the United States are starting to realize that they're coming to the end of the line in which uh, or, or to the or to the road or, or journey in which they can essentially portray Muslims as hapless, perpetual victims of oppression in the West. I just did uh, an interview with Ismail Royer uh, just a, a few weeks ago that was published on Focus on Western Islamism. And one of the things that he said is, is that, look, let's be clear. Muslims in the United States are actually able to practice their faith with really out, without much interference uh, from their neighbors. Uh, and you can tr try to whip up hostility or resentment over the so-called oppression that they endured. But if you look closely, essentially what we're looking at is the he even described uh, the United States as the equivalent of Ethiopia, where uh, the early followers of Muhammad were able to get some respite and some safety from their persecutors uh, during the early stages of the founding of their religion. And I think that the notion and one of the arguments or criticisms that uh, Ismail Royer has leveled at care in the past is the promotion of this grievance victim narrative, so to speak, on behalf of Muslims in the United States. He says what that organization really needs to do at this point is to essentially start to promote and pursue the public good. And I don't know whether or not they're going to take Ismail Royer's criticism to heart, but I think that they realized um, that you know the local chapter of uh, the Muslim Student Association and the local chapter of CARE essentially took it too far it, it, and essentially this and the, the you can watch i would encourage people to look on youtube for the press conference the, the january 11th press conference because essentially they just promoted uh this notion of grievance and victimhood and it and one of the more troubling elements of this press conference is when uh the student from the muslim student association who was in the class essentially approached the microphone and, and, and tearfully talked about the trauma of actually seeing these images. And it, it was like promoting this, 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 this notion that Muslims are so fragile and in constant need of protection, um, I think is not a, a look that even many Muslims really want to embrace anymore. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, so you mentioned the school newspaper earlier in your in your uh, right. overview. What role did the school newspaper play in stoking the controversy? And is it still stoking this controversy? Right. This is, uh, one of the interesting things is that one a faculty member actually wrote uh, an opinion piece in defense of, of the art history professor, uh, Lopez Prater. That was and he, but they took that article down for the alleged harm that it had done to Muslim students on the campus, which is pretty shocking because essentially, you know, I, I read the newspaper not every day, but there are things that, you know, offend my sensibilities all the time, um, you know, and I'm a pretty fragile individual. But, uh, but the, the problem is, is that nobody worries too much about that. 
the idea that you're going to take an article down that has been published that makes a legitimate defense of somebody and enunciates essentially one of the most important principles of, ac of academia, which is academic freedom itself, is pretty outrageous. And just recently, they have continued to cover this story essentially from the perspective of uh, the notion that uh, this was an insult uh, to Muslims. Uh, and that essentially, and one of the interesting things that they've done is, is that they have worked with another uh, local newspaper called the Sahan Journal, which uh, essentially uh, represents the interests and concerns of uh, the immigrant and, uh, community in Minnesota. And they've essentially kind of shared joint coverage. They published a story that was written by, by people from both publications. And just as Hamlin University, essentially, it looks as if what they've done is handed over institutional sovereignty over to outsiders, namely the, uh, and that's what it appears to be. Maybe I'm overstating it, but that's what, you know, that's what it appears to be. It seems as if the Hamlin Oracle, the local newspaper, uh, has essentially kind of shared its editorial freedom or, or editorial responsibility and editorial independence uh, with a publication that doesn't really have any uh, connection to Hamlin University. Now, I was the opinion editor of a school newspaper out in a, a school out in the Pacific Northwest a long time ago. Uh, and, and the idea, and, and, you know, and those were kind of my salad days. I really enjoyed it. But the idea that I would ever hand like the editorial voiceover to somebody from outside the school is just shocking. And when you compare what has happened uh, at Hamlin University with, with the, uh, the editorial freedom and coverage that was shown by uh, the people at the Oberlin Review during the Mahalati scandal uh, last year, and that's still ongoing, and I haven't seen any recent coverage about that at that school newspaper. The people at the Oberlin Review showed tremendous coverage and tremendous editorial freedom and doggedness that you would expect to see from professional journalists that we haven't seen, okay? And uh, the uh, one of the reporters and the editors involved was a woman by the name of Gigi Ewing. She showed tremendous courage and independence in covering this, and she went after the administration. What we have at uh, the Hamlin Oracle is essentially people fronting for the administration. And, you know, from the perspective of a, a former collegiate journalist, if, if the local paper, if the school newspaper isn't going to challenge the, 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 the mistakes made by the school's administration, uh, they, you know, the, the students really don't, they don't have a voice. So that, that's my take on that. Thank you. Uh, so why did this story take off while so many others about this issue ha haven't gotten any attraction? I think they went after the wrong person, okay? Because I think that uh, Erica Lopez Prater, I think was probably, for lack of a better word, a good liberal, okay? She was somebody that was on board with the diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda. She gave a number of trigger warnings. She gave a trigger warning uh, in the class. She gave a trigger warning in the, uh, uh, the syllabus. And it doesn't look like she's some sort of fire-breathing right-wing conservative. She essentially does not want to make anybody unhappy or angry. And she's not part of uh, the counter-Islamist community, so to speak. She's somebody that just wanted to teach art. 
art history, excuse me, and that's all she wanted to do. And uh, and she was apparently she was doing a pretty good job of it. And once people realized that even the trigger warnings that she gave in good faith, she these were good faith trigger warnings when they were used against her at the January 11th uh, press conference that, that, that took place in uh, Minnesota. Uh, Essentially, both Jelani Hussein and Aram Wedetala said those trigger warnings are proof that she knew what she was doing was wrong. And so historically, you know, if you didn't give trigger warnings, you were a bad person. Now, when somebody does give a trigger warning, oh, well, that's proof that you were basically operating in bad faith and you knew what you were doing was wrong. So I think that people in the academy are starting to recognize that, well, frankly, that the, the, they're coming for them, too. You know, and we all know that people in the academy generally tend to be on the left side of things, okay? If the professor had been on the right side somehow or, or you know, hadn't shown the, the obeisance to the DEI agenda that, 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 I, that is required these days, well, they might have let that person just uh, hang out to dry. But I think once the academy recognized that it was one of their own, that was basically being subjected to the equivalent of a witch trial, then people said, we've got a problem on our hands and we need to do something to stop this. This has gone too far. They're coming for us. All right, and the, uh, well, I really wanna follow up with that is, uh, you know, is this a witch trial and, and will this actually make a dent? Will people? Well, you see, you know, you know, I, I came from the uh, the university, uh, excuse me, the United Church of Christ, okay, and we were the inheritors of that that whole fiasco of the witch trial fiasco, and uh, and I think that maybe we are essentially where somebody could use the material from this uh, this event as sort of like an, another rewrite of the witch trial. I think there was a play called The Crucible. And the, this, you know, you could call it, the, you know, if I were to start like a, 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 like a newspaper uh, at Hamline that was essentially kind of a, uh, you know, dissident publication, I would call it just off the top of my head, the Ham, Hamline Crucible. That's what I would call it. So yeah, I think that this was kind of the equivalent of a witch trial, and I think it's it, and I think it woke a lot of people up, and and it woke even maybe some of the wokesters up as well. I'm hoping. Hopefully, absolutely. Uh, so in your commentary about the piece, you wrote that there is reason to hope that Muslim leaders in the West will abandon the ongoing effort to portray Muslims in the 21st century as potential or real victims of what Jews endured in the 20th. Clearly, you're making a larger point here. Right. Uh, so what are you trying to get at? Do you really think Muslim leaders are uh, starting to realize promoting controversies like this is a losing strategy? Maybe I'm being too hopeful, okay? But you know the but I'm more hopeful than I was when than when I first started it as managing editor of FWI. And uh, because I think that and so, I think what this, we've all heard about cultural appropriation. Well, I think what we're seeing to a certain extent is grievance appropriation. In the aftermath of the Holocaust and World War II, essentially we kind of drew a bright red line around the Jewish people and said, we need to be careful about how we talk about these people. And it wasn't just for the benefit and welfare of the Jewish people. 
but it was for, because of civilization itself. Because essentially we discovered in the aftermath of World War II that scapegoating the Jewish people was a sure way to basically lead to civilizational disaster. There was just no way around it. So there was a taboo about talking about the Jewish people in the ways that we used to. And I think what, it, and, and to sadly some extent or to a large extent, we still do or have started to again. And what happened was, is that I think a various number of activists started to say, well, and, and excuse me for putting it in such blunt terms, it's like, well, we want some of that. We want to basically be treated with the kid gloves that, that we saw the Jewish people uh, treated with in the aftermath of the Holocaust. And uh, the thing is, and I just want to make it clear, is, is that a lot of the, the, the discussion and polemics about the Arab-Israeli conflict are essentially recapitulations of what we've heard about the Jews historically. And, uh, but the thing is, is that people thought, well, if we can portray ourselves as the victims, uh, and then what we can do is have our community rendered protected from the, 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 the difficulties of the human condition and the difficulties that come from being a, minor, being a minority. And one of the things that, and, and I, I'm going to introduce a phrase, you know, uh, the, I, I've just written an article, hopefully it'll be, be this phrase, won't, the Islamophobiacs. There are people out there that basically want to say that every time something bad happens uh, to the Muslim community, it is the result of Islamophobia. Uh, and that, uh, and that ultimately everything, and I, I think that's really, it, that whole line of reasoning has been used to essentially protect, um, uh, you know, Muslims who behave badly from any real intense criticism or scrutiny for the things that, that they need to be scrutinized for. And I think that even right now, I think that uh, there are people in the Muslim community that are starting to recognize that that's not really the way forward. During uh, our interview, Ismail Royer said a, a civilization that is continually on the defense and resentful, and, and that's not an exact quote, basically that civilization is headed to disaster because it cannot renew itself. And so I think, um, I think that's really what we're looking at is, is that uh, people want to somehow grab on to the notion that they are the potential or real victims of uh, of what the Jews went through in the 20th century, so that essentially they are given a pass uh, for any of the misdeeds that they have uh, that, that that need to be confronted. And the thing is, is that uh, whatever grace has been that was accorded to the Jewish people in, in the aftermath of the Holocaust started to disappear in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and now people can say hateful and untrue things about Israel and Jews all the time. So, one last question. Uh, you know, obviously, in the news right now, we have Ilhan Omar uh, and ousting from from the Foreign Affairs Committee. Can you draw any similarities there? Well, I, I think, first of all, she has said some things that normally that that I think to a reasonable person or a reasonable, uh, uh, you know, man, so to speak, uh, would be fearful or, or unhappy with her presence on the Foreign Affairs Committee, because essentially what she has said some, you know, 
unreasonable things, I know, just leave it at that, about a very important U.S. ally. And it looks as if she's doing this kind of to kind of whip up support for in the part of the Islamist community, not just here in the United States, but basically worldwide. And the thing is, is that when you look at it, this is just straight up politics. This is what happens in Congress. And I'm not a huge follower of what happens in Congress, but people get stripped from committee assignments all the time for, you know, for whatever reason. And they always say, yeah, I'm a victim. This is terrible. This is anti-democratic. But that's life in the big city. That's how things go. And I think once, and if you don't want those things to happen, there are certain ways to behave. I live in the city of Boston, okay? And I've learned that, you know, there are certain, you know, life in the city is tough. And so you have to learn how to basically adapt to, you know, life at that level. And one of the ways you stay out of trouble is to not say crazy things about Israel. And, and frankly, she did. So there it is. All right, thank Sorry you. So blonde. I hope I haven't, you know, offended the sensibilities of our listeners, but that's just, you know, you know, I'm feeling expansive this morning or this afternoon. <laughs> Sorry to change topics a little bit, but uh, it, it sounded similar. Anyway, Carrie Hillebrand asks, is the abuse of Islamophobia being countered in the more prominent universities where it is rampant, such as uh, uh, CUNY in uh, Columbia, UC Berkeley, et cetera? Uh, See, that you would have probably have to ask the folks um, uh, who were more involved in, in Campus Watch. Um, but my instinct is, is that things are probably are pretty, uh, if you're asking me, I think that it's very likely that essentially the accusation of Islamophobia is used to essentially silence uh, criticism or any honest discussion about, uh, you know, political Islam or Islamism. Uh, in the modern world. And, and if I were a college professor today, you know, it would be one of the things that I'd want to talk about, but I, but I would be afraid to do it. And uh, just recently, uh, you know, last year, Colin May, who was the, uh, he was the chief of the uh, Human Rights Council for Alberta up in Canada, he was essentially ousted for an article that he'd written in praise of Ephraim Karsh's book, uh, uh, about uh, uh, Islamic imperialism. And he, and I read the article and I was like, there's nothing there. So anytime you, you talk about uh, political Islam or the impact of Islamism on world politics and as a political force, you run into trouble. And, you know, I just, I, I just borrowed a copy of Constantine Sort, uh, you can talk about Christianity and its its impact on the status of Jews, but if you talk about the impact of, of uh, Islam on non-Muslims in Muslim-majority environments, you get into a lot of trouble. Thank you. So an anonymous attendee asks, I'm curious whether we can marshal the term Islamophobia to point out the hypocrisy of those who use it. Uh, example, more than 100 Muslims were killed in a mosque by a Muslim. Uh, can't we call that internal Islamophobia? Isn't Muslim-on-Muslim uh, Muslim murder the real problem? Well, you see now that, yeah, numerically, that's a, that's the issue, is, is that ultimately, and, and, you know, that doesn't mean that West is is intra-Muslim violence is a huge issue, just the same way that, that uh, intra-Christian violence has been a huge issue during the course of Western civilization. Okay, Christians have killed each other in huge numbers, and, and so have, have Muslims. Um, 
and I think that tactically it's a very good idea. And it's it, it, and the thing is, is that and just recently I'm, I'm, I've been reading a book uh, by uh, uh, Khaled uh, Beydoun uh, called The New Crusades, in which he says that ultimately Islamophobia, there was a passage in there. He said that Islamophobia is a problem in Muslim majority countries as well. And, and I said that logically that doesn't make any sense. But the thing is, is that, you know, Christians have had good reason to be frightened of one another. And Muslims have had good reasons to be frightened of one another in the course of their conflicts. So does that fear qualify as Christianophobia or Islamophobia? I don't think so. But uh, if we deploy that logic and, and that type of language, it will expose the incoherence of the Islamophobia regime. Thank you so much. And David Levine asks, has the ACLU or other organizations who are allegedly fighting for the rights uh, contained in the First Amendment offering any assistance? At America, that was one of the organizations that I did kind of, I was kind of surprised. And I, and I should have looked at the National Writers Union uh, because a lot, I have a confession to make. A long time ago, I was chairman of the Boston local of the National Writers Union. And right after 9-11, uh, I helped author a, uh, a resolution basically condemning uh, the possibility of anti-Muslim bigotry in light of the attack. We never got it passed because we were too disorganized. Um, but the, if you look at, uh, there was also the American Association of University Professors. They came uh, to Lopez Prater's defense as well. So, and I would like to see that the National Writers Union would do something about it, uh, but I think that they're, and if they have, that would be good because I would think that they would be very far uh, to the woke or progressive side of the equation and might not do that. But speaking as a former member, maybe they will, who knows? Or maybe they already have, I'll check that out. All right, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Before we go, can you tell us where we can find some more of your work? Okay, you can go to, uh, our website is called Focus on Western Islamism, and the uh, URL is islamism.news, and also you'll see an awful lot of our articles, or at least a few of them, uh, uh, republished on the website for the Middle East Forum, and I want to thank everybody for attending. All right, well, thank you. Thank you, Dexter, for joining us today. Thank you. All right. For our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.